to Choate's Litigation Updates, a podcast series hosted by our trial attorneys covering current litigation strategic issues in life sciences, financial services, healthcare, consumer products, and private equity. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners today. This is the Choate Hall and Stewart podcast series on what we can expect legally in a putative Roe versus Wade gone world, that is the post-Roe world. My name is Joan Lukey. I'm the co-chair of the Complex Trial and Appellate Group at Choate. And with me today are Christine Savage, the co-chair of the Healthcare Group, and Allison Reef, the chair of the Employment Group. This is the first in a series of substantive podcasts, but this one is an overview to give you some concept of the issues we expect to come up in our respective areas if the leaked decision stands in substantial part. And we recognize that may not be the case, but let's jump right in with healthcare. Christine, what kind of legal questions are you hearing from healthcare providers in light of Justice Alito's leaked opinion? Well, Joan, there's a number of issues that have been percolating up from both individual clinicians, hospitals and clinics, and even funds that invest in healthcare businesses. Among the individual providers, they want to know what's the potential impact on state licensure if they practice in multiple states with very different laws. For example, could one state with an abortion ban or restrictive abortion laws take action to restrict or terminate a physician's license to practice based on that physician's activity in another state where that activity remains lawful? We also have individuals and institutions concerned about potential civil or criminal liability if they provide services to someone who has traveled from a state where those services, uh, and that would include abortion services, and based on what we're hearing in the news most recently, even potentially contraception services, states where that may become illegal. And we're already seeing a number of states, including Massachusetts, where legislative proposals are being introduced to shield people from being sued or extradited for providing care to patients who have crossed state lines to access care. Even investors are confronting questions about whether their investments in femtech or reproductive health or health IT generally are now less attractive or too risky given the regulatory concerns or compliance costs. Well, that's an interesting set of problems. What about the potential impact on medical education? That's a really great question. And the answer is going to depend a lot on whether in a post-row environment, states limit those laws to restrictions on procedures themselves or extend the law to prohibit the counseling of patients or the education of providers about diagnoses and treatments that might implicate those procedures down the line. It really, frankly, starts to feel like a series of law school exam questions by way of example. You know, what does the training surrounding the diagnosis and treatment of an ectopic pregnancy look like in a state where a surgical procedure to address that condition could be considered an abortion? Or how could a clinician follow the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and state law if they are prohibited or limited in their ability to advise a patient that they could seek other treatment in another jurisdiction? Can or should clinicians offer genetic screening of embryos or pregnancies in certain states if termination or discarding of the embryos is no longer an option for those patients. So there's really a lot to think about from the medical education perspective, both in terms of where students may wish to seek to be educated and what their training attending physicians are, are able to teach them along the way. 
Let's turn for a couple of minutes to some of the hot topics in the employment and employee benefits sphere. Allison, what types of questions are you fielding or anticipating employers will have if the final opinion is not markedly different from the leaked draft? Sure. So I can foresee at least four sort of buckets of questions that employers will have from their employees. The first one is pretty simple, and it's just expect a reaction from your workforce. They're having one now, and it will be renewed when the final decision comes out if it doesn't change materially or, frankly, even if it does. So, for example, employees might want time off to attend protests. So think about your time off policies and and what that kind of time might be covered under. Second, your dress code policy or rules on personal items and workspaces may be challenged with hats and masks and buttons with slogans on one side of the issue or the other. Um, Those can cause complications, particularly with employers that have very specific dress codes. Second issue, consider your role in this national debate. It's really interesting. It's changed over time, the expectations that employees have of their employers. So some employers, particularly very large ones, choose to wield their power to take particular positions in a debate like this. Even in smaller companies, though, some employees expect and ask their employers to take a strong stance and an active role. Other employers choose not to comment or be as publicly involved, usually because they have employees on both or all sides of an issue. There can also be significant employee reaction to either of those approaches. Companies are also going to want to consider the community in which their business operates and their client base, um, because those groups might also have a reaction to an employer's stance or lack thereof on this issue. The third one, which is probably the one that comes up the most often, I think, is consider the upcoming changes in your employee benefits offerings. So for fully insured employee health insurance plans, your insurer will likely have to cease covering abortions and related reproductive care in states that prohibit it. For self-insured plans, there may be the ability to offer coverage of such services in other states. So some employers are considering offering new or additional benefits to offset some of those changes. For example, employers are considering offering travel and other expense reimbursements to employees in states where abortions are prohibited to enable them to obtain care in other states. There are pretty complicated ERISA and tax rules around how and when that can be implemented. So definitely companies are going to want to consult with counsel before they make those kinds of changes or to discuss their options. A couple of options that I've heard employers talking about are to offer reimbursement through what's known as an HRA, a health reimbursement arrangement plan administered by a third party to protect confidentiality. Another option is an employee support fund that's not designated specifically for abortion services, but could be used in part to help employees defray the costs of an out-of-state abortion. Other employers might consider more radical solutions like offering relocation expenses for employees who wish to permanently leave their state. So those are just some of the options that employers are thinking about on the benefit side. Then the last and fourth category that I'm seeing employers at least start to think about, it's not here yet until there's a final decision, but there may be potential discrimination claims. So gender, religion, and pregnancy are all protected categories at the federal level and in most states. 
And in some states, political affiliation is also a protected category that's indirectly implicated in the issue. So I can see claims burbling up on all sides of this once the decision becomes final. So that's the employment overview. Joan, I imagine you have thoughts about litigation issues and risks in the post-Roe world. Allison, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of issues in this area that will percolate into litigation, unfortunately. Now, the first thing to remember is what the Supreme Court is apparently intending to do based on the leaked version of the opinion is to give back to the states individual control over all abortion-related issues. Right now, 21 states either have laws that will take effect immediately, or they have announced their intentions to enact laws. Another seven are leaning in that direction. So, of course, what you have to consider as employers out there is how many of your employees, if any, are in any of those states. And then it requires a state-by-state analysis And Choate right now is preparing via its task force on this issue, which is multidisciplinary, to track and be prepared to respond, to help you and to guide you in the instances where you would be better served with local counsel in the state. In some instances, the issues will be relatively uniform and we can help you in all of the states. It's not just a question, though, of whether you have employees in one of the restrictive states. It's a question of whether individuals who live in those states work for you and what the impact is if they cross over and try to seek reproductive right procedures, for example, in Massachusetts, a state or whatever your home state is that is not a restrictive state. If you're a healthcare facility, and this is a little bit of what Christine was talking about, you also have the issue of what happens with patients from a restrictive state coming to you and what are the considerations for you of whether you may be under that particular state's law charged with some form of aiding and abetting unless your own state has adopted a statute similar to what Christine referenced, which basically prohibits any attempt to use extraterritorial jurisdiction over Massachusetts employers. And of course, if you're an academic institution, if you have a medical school, that's something that Christine has already talked about. But you also are going to have students from restrictive states and you likely have a medical clinic of some type on your campus for the benefit of your students. And perhaps you will even have certain prescription services for your students. Again, you will be looking at whether the particular state from which the student come has purported to have an aiding and abetting provision which says anybody who helps wherever they may be is liable under our state statute. You will have to consider when you're assessing the risks whether it is a civil liability or potentially whether there is criminal liability. And then you will have to consider what happens when the insurer in the individual state is unable to provide the coverage and what your obligations, as was alluded to by Allison, are in terms of trying to equalize benefits nationwide, if that is your practice. And again, if you're academic, uh, you have to consider whether a group plan that you offer for insurance presents problems in those states, and probably it will be a good number of them who use an aiding and abetting provision to reach anybody who is involved in the process. And just as a very brief example, Uber has announced its intention 
to indemnify any of its drivers who are hit with civil penalties or damages in the bounty states for assisting in transporting patients for such services in or out of state. So there are a number of issues to watch out for, and we're glad to help you do it. There are also a number of risks. What exactly is going to be the position of the states with whom you may have to interact because of your workforce or your patients or your students? Is it a full aiding and abetting statute that really reaches everybody, or does it require you to have some kind of reach into that state? And how many of these states will actually try to exercise full-blown extraterritorial jurisdiction? And what that means is simply, are they going to try to claim that their state laws can be applied to you as an employer or a hospital or an academic institution in another state? Historically, that was an easy question to answer. States had authority or jurisdiction with their own state, but not beyond. That issue is a lot murkier now than it used to be as we become a more interconnected world through the internet and otherwise. And at the end of the day, the question for you is going to be, what is your risk tolerance if you want to engage in workarounds, if you want to provide a confidential fund to cover medical benefits, if you want to cover the expenses for an employee who must travel out of state to get reproductive benefits? How much risk are you willing to take, which may turn not only on the law and not only on your own normal sensibilities, but on what you think your employees or students or patients will really demand, particularly important in the employment context. The litigation in this area is likely to be broad. Some could be proactive. Someone somewhere is going to challenge these attempts at extraterritorial jurisdiction, for example. But most will likely end up being reactive and very state-specific, something that we can help you with. So we hope this overview gives you an idea of what this podcast series is all about. We have also got, for your listening pleasure, a podcast involving retired Chief Justice Margaret Marshall, our senior counsel here at Choate, who is going to be addressing issues about how this may extend into areas other than reproductive rights, as Christine mentioned at the beginning. And in particular, you will recall that Chief Justice Marshall was the author of the Goodrich decision which is the gay marriage decision. And that is expected by many of the legal pundits to be the next area at risk. So we encourage you to listen to that podcast and to be on the lookout for another six to 12 podcasts in the works that are in more detail in each subject matter area. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you found this podcast valuable. And thank you, Allison and Christine. Great as always to be with you. For more information, please visit www.choat.com. You can also listen to additional podcast episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation.